Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, the creator of Heidi World, the Heidi Fleiss story, an excellent podcast that you all should be listening to. Molly Lambert is in the house. Molly, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Molly, uh, your invitation to Hit Factory was pretty much a foregone conclusion at some point, but uh, we have a, a... That doesn't a, sound threatening at all. <laughs> no, only, only only meaning that that you were... We, we wanted you on the show uh, any, any chance we could, uh, but uh, a friend of the show, a listener, uh, I think a, a mutual listener, in fact, of, of both of our programs, uh, our, our friend Joe, uh, got into a, a conversation with us on Twitter and said, you all have to do Pretty Woman, which is the subject of today's conversation. We're so thankful that you said yes, first and foremost. And I, I always like to ask and, and want to know, um, beyond feeling coerced publicly, why Pretty Woman? What does Pretty Woman mean to you? Uh, what is it about this movie that you find special? Well, um, I think that just the connection to Heidi World uh, made it a natural for us to talk about. And I actually just watched it again last night and noticed some new things connecting it to Heidi World that I had not thought about before. So um, it's just a it's just a cr- insane movie, insane and like also incredibly watchable. Like yeah, it's so good. I I learned a lot this time. I've only seen it a couple times actually. Um, I don't know if you guys know the story of like how Pretty Woman is made, but. Basically, it was like a spec script by a guy mm-hmm. about prostitutes on Hollywood Boulevard that he wrote because he was like some screenwriter who lived in Hollywood and he was like, he just started going down to Hollywood Boulevard and like interviewing interviewing prostitutes and talking to them about, about the life. And then he wrote this pretty depressing script about it uh, called 3000 which is about the money, the amount of money that the guy mm-hmm. agrees to give uh, Vivian for the for hanging out with him for a week. Um, and then all these other directors were attached and all these different stars were attached. And then it became a Gary Marshall movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Gary Marshall basically just like threw out the script and – all these different people were considered, but you know, became Richard Gere, and then like every woman in Hollywood basically turned it down. Yeah, and they ended up with Julia Roberts, who was coming off of Mystic Pizza, mm-hmm. and I think Steel Magnolias. Yep, um, and who was twenty two, which is insane. Um, then it just turned into a romantic comedy instead. It was supposed to be this like gritty, hard hitting movie about being a prostitute. Uh, with this dark ending and then instead it became a Gary Marshall movie and so it became like a screwball comedy about like these two people just hanging out all week and falling in love Um, and literally everything is improvised that's what I didn't know until I watched it last night again I learned that and just thinking about how much like film it took back then to do something like that yeah (laughs) yeah and also like what it kind of says about the arc of the script as sort of like a reflection of, you know, 
I don't know, sort of like what we desire and what we want out of out of romance and relationships and and sort of like of society more broadly speaking, which is that like we don't you know, there's this effort constantly to sanitize things and to to really turn things into a fairy tale. And so it's interesting that even in this particular um, with this particular story that 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 is the arc you know, someone wanting to tell like a, a more sort of truthful reflection of the lives of the women um, on Hollywood Boulevard and instead Hollywood deciding that uh, it's going to be a romantic comedy, a literal fairy tale instead. Yeah, I mean, I and I think that like it ends up being transgressive because first of all, it's a Disney movie. Right. So the fact that it's like one of the most successful Disney touchstone movies ever and it's about a hooker and a businessman falling in love is so crazy. But also um, it ends up being transgressive because it ends up being like, oh, the sex worker's a person. She like deserves mm-hmm. love. <laughs> you know, it's not, it, she doesn't have to like renounce sex work in the movie ever really. It's like, she's kind of like, yeah, it's fine actually. <laughs> like, yeah, there's a part where she talks about like, oh, I worked at a, you know, a, I worked in fast food and like then I now I'm doing this and it's better. There's an interesting conversation about the meritocracy and sort of like how it fits into like the vision of who these women are, Kit and Vivian, um, Julia Roberts and Laura San Giacomo, whom I love in this film. Um, there's like a lot of effort, I think, up front and throughout the movie to establish that these are women like with principles and women who have goals and who are like worthy of, you know, more than what they're given or more than what their lot in life is. Um, They're treated like people in the movie, which is, you know, not, not that common. And it's because Lars Andre Como and Julie Roberts are so good, but it does also feel like they're like, they're in like a Jonathan Demi movie or something. Like it's it's <laughs> for a Gary Marshall movie. These are like very uh, three dimensional characters. Yeah, absolutely. And there's like I there's also this sort of equivocating that the movie does. I think to at, at once kind of like say like yes, this is a life that these women want to escape, and on the other hand, like also sort of glamorizes it a little bit to a certain extent. And that's where like, I've seen this movie millions of times. And uh, I, on this last watch was noticing more like this kind of uneven moral posture that the movie has towards these women where like it is inherently treating them like people, which is, as you said, transgressive. And on the other hand, like, trying to also justify their value by showing us all these other ways that like Vivian is like smart and like she does well at business dinners and you know she she softens Edward so there are all these other reasons that we're supposed to be invested in her success right but it also it kind of like accepts that being a sex worker is a job you know right when yeah. he calls her like she's a saleswoman but you know when somebody asks what what she does and he's He's like she's she's in sales. It's like she is in sales. 
He's also in sales. He he's trying to like Pygmalion her, but then at the end, it's like he's the one who has to go down to Hollywood Boulevard to like mm-hmm. find her. Right. Um, and and it just doesn't it doesn't like denounce prostitution as much as I remembered it. Like it, it it's pretty mm-hmm. much like it, it it's sort of even keeled about it, which is surprising just considering how. Uh, shitty most things are on this it's it, it's like sh- she gets to be a person even her friend gets to be a person yeah the original ending was like her friend like ods on drugs like i think they were mm-hmm. supposed to be cokeheads in the original draft and the original script is that she's a cokehead he tells her she has to like not do coke for a week while she's mm-hmm. with him then he catches her doing coke and he like throws her out of the car at the end and then she takes mm-hmm. the money and she takes Kit, Laura San Giacomo, and she takes Kit to Disneyland with it. <laughs> and that's, you know, it just sounds like way more of like like urban cowboy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not urban, cow- not urban cowboy, midnight cowboy. <laughs> midnight yeah. cowboy, yeah. Yeah, Different totally. movies, but yes, definitely that. It sounds like it was way more of a midnight cowboy about like these two women, you know, kind of like trying to, trying to make their way through the Wild West finding money. Yeah, completely. Um, and so then again, then it became a Gary Marshall movie. Then Julia Roberts got cast, and mm-hmm. they had such great chemistry that Gary Marshall was like, "No, this movie's got to have a happy ending." <laughs> yeah. As I was uh, doing research on this, it it looks like one of the the kind of principal uh, people behind making that shift and having them kind of throw out the book and and restart from the pre- the premise of a a fantasy and a rom com was Jeffrey Katzenberg. Who's yeah, responsible for so many awful decisions in all of Hollywood? I feel like yes. all the good things that that have ever happened, like through his his reign, uh, were largely by accident or had nothing to do with him. Things in spite of his decision making. Um, yeah, and yet here he made he like this was the right call. Like if Touchstone had put out a movie about like a prostitute that was really depressing, uh, it would not have been a hit, and this kind of like screwball comedy fantasy of her, you know, about the prostitute and the businessman. Um, yeah. It just like, it kind of like, it makes sex work seem like a little bit wholesome, which is great. Um, it's like what she's doing is something everybody can understand. Nobody knows what Richard Gere's job is in this movie (laughs) you know it's like he's in finance okay he like moves money around but like just even like she keeps asking him like what do you do and he's like i'm in business (laughs) and she's like do you make anything right like you don't make anything Mm -hmm. you don't sell anything she does make something and sell something and they just have such great chemistry like it really does work it really does i my relationship with this movie is that it was one of two VHSs that my mom like hid in a closet. And then like I got to be a certain age and she uh, presented me with them more or less and was like, okay, you can watch these now. And it was this and Fargo. Um, and I think I was like eight and she just decided that that was like the age that I could watch pretty woman. And I watched this film for the first time and like just adored it. 
Um, not just because I loved the fashion and I loved, you know, the sort of glamour and the fantasy of it. But if we're talking about this sort of this like uh, this fairy tale aspect, like as a child, I was really familiar with the beats of a Disney princess movie. Um, and this film is ostensibly a Disney princess movie, um, but live action and, uh, you know, the the backdrop is Hollywood Boulevard and like the Ritz or whatever hotel they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a kid, it was really easily digestible for me. Like I understood it. I understood what was happening. I, I got the sort of arc of Vivian's character and the arc of, you know, the Prince character played by Richard Gere. And I, I just watched this movie all the time. Like it was just a really, it went down really easy. It was satisfying. And, um, I do think it's really interesting that it's one of the most successful Disney films, but it also makes sense when you, when you understand that narratively it really does operate like every other Disney princess movie. Yeah. But again, it's like, it's, I don't want to say it's grounded because that's not the right word, Mm -hmm. but it kind of takes, like, I think what really struck me this time watching it was like, this movie is just people, two people talking in rooms. That's the whole movie, basically. It's like yeah. he – it isn't just like he's – you know, it's not like Fifty Shades of Grey. It's not like he's like taking her on a helicopter or whatever to be like – again, it's like she kind of indoctrinates him. You're on the sex worker's side in this movie. Uh, you're not on the yuppie's side. So, again, it's right. like she kind of pulls him over to her side rather than the other way around. Look, I gotta say this again. I don't like you going alone. Edward, I know a lot of nice girls. No, you don't. Work it, work it, baby. Hey, Sugar, you looking for a date? No, I want to find Beverly Hills. Can you give me directions? Sure. For five bucks. Ridiculous. Crash just went up to ten. Hundred dollars an hour. Pretty stiff. Well, no, but it's got potential. I have a business proposition for you. You're talking twenty-four hours a day. It's gonna cost you. You could get a million girls free. Born professional. <laughs> Baby, I'm gonna treat you so nice. You're never gonna wanna let me go. Vivian, I will let you go. But I'm here now. You already mentioned, Molly, that like every woman in Hollywood basically either read for this uh, film or read the script and turned it down or confused the tone of the movie and wasn't quite sure what to make of it. Uh, And then we fall upon Julia Roberts, who eventually gets cast here, having done at this point just Mystic Pizza and uh, Steel Magnolias as well, which gets her her first Oscar nomination. Um, She's nominated again for this film the following year. But there is just something about her, just like a, a... perfect magnetism about her that feels elegant but also to steal a word from you molly like kind of grounded like she feels very much like someone you could know she has a lot of moments in here where she's sort of unencumbered and 
you know, chuckling or, or, you know, using coarse language or, or having a couple of like rough around the edges moments, like even as she's getting sort of Pygmalion and my fair lady along the way, uh, she's, she's just magnetic. You can't not love her. Yeah. She's just so great on screen. And Gary Marshall comes from happy days and Laverne and Shirley that's definitely like the tone of his movies is a little bit sitcom but this is the one that works the best because it is kind of just like it's goofy. The romantic horny stuff gets interrupted by like humor always, which is great and hot. You know, when they like are mm-hmm. having sex on the piano. Yep. <laughs> There's just so much sex in it for a Disney movie. Yeah. It's, it's interesting too, to think about how important it is that, that Vivian is Julia Roberts, right? Because she has this, she strikes this perfect balance of, you know, being gorgeous and striking. Um, And so it's believable that like a man could see her on Hollywood Boulevard and be like, yeah, even if she's in a Carol Channing wig, Um, she has this really familiar quality. um, And I think it's one of the things that made her so castable in so many things is that she feels like someone who you actually know. She feels like a fully realized person. I was watching her body language a lot uh, on this, on this last rewatch and just noticing like how good she is with her body when she's acting. There are times when she's like, kind of like, you know, hunching over because she's like being more casual and she's trying to signal to us that like, she's like cooler and more like, you know, course around the edges than say an Edward. And then there are times when she's reminding us that she is putting on a little bit of a performance for Edward sometimes when he needs her to be, you know, a person, but she's fidgeting and she's just, um, they call attention to her fidgeting constantly in the movie yeah, too, that she's right. like always has this kind of like little like nervous tick and energy behind everything. Yeah. And just that she's like an overconfident. She's kind of like an over talker, you know, yes. false, false confidence. Uh, and then there are lots of moments when it's like, oh, no, she's just she's kind of bullshitting. And she's actually nervous. She's actually scared. Yeah. I love the way she plays the dinner scene with Morse and his grandson when she's like, clearly Vivian is you know, comfortable around men. She's comfortable around men with power. Um, but she's also communicating to us that she uh, she's nervous and she really wants to show up. Um, and she just, she, Julia Roberts manages to just add so much detail um, and curvature to her performance. I just, I love her. I love her in this film. And I she's another reason I was able, I think, to really latch on to this movie as a child. She just she feels so familiar and she feels she's so just, real. She's so lovable on screen. So I think she it is. is like as soon as she got cast, they were just like, all we have to do is put this person on screen and you're going to fall in love with her. And some of the men who auditioned were more like comedians. Like I guess Charles Grodin got pretty far along, mm-hmm. and then Albert Brooks as well. Yeah, really. Oh yeah. God, what a bad movie that would have been. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of my hot takes is I never want to see Albert Brooks fuck anybody. 
Um, <laughs> is that a hot take? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a big Albert. Bro- I'm not an Albert Brooks fan. Shared uh, by James L. Brooks, you know, constantly denying him any sort of sexual sexual satisfaction in broadcast news. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I've actually never seen broadcast news. That's my dark secret. <laughs> about, That's okay. But I, I should watch it. I bet I would. I know I would like it. I mean. I knew like, I'd never seen Pretty Woman in, until a few years ago, and then when I saw it, I was like, "Whenever you see just like a big hit like that from the past, you're like, oh yeah, okay, oh, I yeah, I it. see why everybody watched this and liked it." Um, and Julia Roberts, yeah, I think it's like just watching this movie for the first time. I was like, "Oh, she is a star." I know everybody else knew this already, <laughs> had this experience of watching Pretty Woman and thinking this, but like. Yeah, she's just such a goddamn star. Um, and as a person of having like big curly red hair experience, I also was like, <laughs> this was my era. The like early 90s was when <laughs> all the stars had like big, gigantic curly hair. Um, yes. But also I do think like, like as a redhead one of the best things about being a redhead is that it's sort of just assumed you have a personality (laughs) you know (laughs) like compared to other women it's like your theme is per is you have a personality oh god (laughs) like blondes are hot and brunettes are smart and redheads are like feisty and so (laughs) You can kind of just like be a real person and it kind of goes with with what people think you're going to be like. Yeah, I've, I'm actually really glad you brought this up. The the curly hair thing and, and especially the redhead piece. Um, I have had like ringlets my entire life until the last few years. And I think uh, that's because of stress and age. Um, and as as a young curly headed girl, like I was always like, I don't know. I, I felt like I needed to straighten my hair. I felt like I needed to look like the Pantene Pro V commercial. Um, and it is really nice to see, uh, you know, someone with personality, as you say, but there is something about the aesthetics of Julia Roberts having curly red hair being the thing that allows her to be different, right? Than say like a, you know, a Pam Anderson or someone, someone else on screen. Well, it's also like she's wearing the blonde wig. And so she's like, here I am pretending to be, you know, this type of hot girl. And then she's like, takes it off and is like, okay, here's who I really am. But it is just sort of like, yeah, visually you're like, this person has a vibe. They got a vibe. They got a vibe. The movie even like decides that for us, you know, when when Gear sees her sleeping after she's stayed at the hotel and has taken the wig off and we see her for the first time, you know, laying on her stomach with like her her hair strewn all over the bed. Visually, we know like here's this person like unencumbered and like, you know, the the full kind of breadth and scope of Julia Roberts. Uh, and we're meant to feel that, I think, like, mm-hmm. oh, she's so much more beautiful without the weird carol channing wig on yep yeah right we're supposed to be like oh like she's playing this character but like you know and they're just trying to like break each other's facade the whole movie which is very hot yes 
you know, he's trying to get her to be a real person and she's trying to get him to be a real person and break the business contract. And, you know, and, and I think that's what this movie is really good about is about sort of just like sex and intimacy and, and money and how all those things intersect. And especially crazy because like nobody curses in this movie. <laughs> Right. Yeah, there's like a handful. It, it, it surprised me because I always assumed that this was like a, you know, like a PG or PG-13. And there's like a handful of like F-bombs in the movie. But they there are. Like, but nobody's like, I'm going to fuck you. Yeah, they, right. never, they or... never use it in that sense whatsoever. It's, it, and the language is like very coy about, you know, its, its suggestiveness and its sexuality. Um, yeah. And it is sort of like. It's it's coy because it like understand it, it's not just fully on like I was talking about this with like magic tricks the other day. It's like the person doing the magic trick, like the person who's getting the trick done on them, it's consensual, right? It's like they're not getting tricked because everyone has entered into the agreement that mm -hmm. they're gonna get tricked. <laughs> and so that's kind of like what the setup of this movie is, is like okay, I'm going to pretend to like you for six days. And then at the end, we're going to acknowledge that I don't like you. And yeah, it's like, it's the businessman's fantasy that the sex worker will fall in love with him. It's not the mm -hmm. sex worker's fantasy to fall mm -hmm. in love with the businessman. Like, she knows it's transactional. It's, it's, you know, it's the studio exec's fantasy that, like, the hot woman he's been paying to have sex with him will, like, go for his personality. Because <laughs> also, yes. like, 100%. Like, what is Richard Gere's personality in this movie? It's not yeah. great. Let's, let's talk about that. Because Richard Gere is, like, he's rather sedentary for some of this movie. He's a beautiful man, mm -hmm. right? He's a like beautiful he's man. I, I, he's never really been my thing. Cause I feel like he's a little, there is just something kind of like boring about him to me. But, mm -hmm. but then I also was reading, it's like in this movie, they kind of told him to not do anything. Cause they were yeah. like, yeah. she's the active one. You're the straight man. Very sitcom. Yep. She's, you know, you're Laverne and Shirley, but one of you has to be the straight man. And so that's why they also didn't pick Charles Grodin is because they mm -hmm. were like two, two zany people. Right. Won't work. But like one zany, she's the zany person and he's, you know, and she's watching I Love Lucy at one point and we're like, we're obviously supposed to be like, oh, she's a zany redhead and he, he <laughs> loves it. Um, But yeah, I actually, I thought he was pretty good, you know, because mm -hmm. a lot of it is just like, like close-ups of him like like watching her do stuff and being like hmm do i love her <laughs> his stoicism like works in his favor in this movie because we we get to just kind of read on him our interpretations of the moment you know he's always kind of sizing everything up and you know dialed back and and considering things as they're happening rather than reacting uh yeah, he's and very so it, like it cool. It a bit more she's time. hot. She's she's a hot medium, and he's a cool medium. Yep. Um, but he's also just like in movies, he kind of functions as like an object mainly. Like I feel like in American Gigolo, he's like an object, and you know, Pretty Woman is from 1990, but it's also like the most 80s movie mm -hmm. ever. Yeah, it's like the long late 80s, which is very Heidi World. That's very much like the milieu in which like. Heidi Fleiss kind of was doing her thing was this mm -hmm. late 80s long 80s 
beginning of the 90s, but like still all this kind of just like money, money, money stuff, materialism and like whatever costs the most is the best. Yeah. Um, and so it's also really interesting that like Laura San Giacomo is in this movie because she's also in Sex, Lies and Videotape, which comes out basically at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, 89, I think. And, and this is 90. And these are like Pretty Woman and Sex, Lies and Videotape are like the twin poles of like sex in the movies going into the 90s, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's like it shows you also just that like the tension of a movie, the stakes of a movie can be so low and also so high. It's like going into the the high, you know, coming out of the high concept 80s, but like going into the indie movie 90s, it is like, this movie's kind of my dinner with Andre. It's just two people talking to each other. <laughs> you know? And like, and like having banter, which I think is also like, the thing that's genuinely very romantic to me is like, oh, they like each other. They like make each other laugh. Like that is hot and you so rarely see it, you know? And she's just being goofy, but I can't explain why she's not just like annoying. It's like, she's just very charming and she has this kind of like cowgirl thing. Um, There's a thing about how her body double had to learn how to walk like her because Julia Roberts ha- has this kind of like, like this cow cowboy kind of walk um and her body double was a ballerina who walked very gracefully and so (laughs) she had to like (laughs) learn how to kind of like hulk around the way julia roberts does um and also the the body double was used on the poster so the poster is julia roberts head uh cut and pasted onto the body double right which uh classic classic Classic. move yeah uh, yeah, you know, you talked already about I Love Lucy. There's also a moment here in the movie where Julia Roberts is like falling asleep watching Charade mm-hmm. as well. And there's definitely, for a lot of reasons, I think, you know, thematically uh, and also just sort of like metatextually, they're they're trying to position Julia Roberts as sort of this uh, this character in the vein of an Audrey Hepburn in a lot of ways, you know, kind of like. And and Lucille Ball, like the the kind of goofy redhead, the quirkiness, but also the elegance that are kind of competing for space, but make this sort of effortless whole. And it does this thing in the movie of kind of, like you said, making her sort of this inarticulable, just like beautiful but fun kind of energetic spirit at the core of it. And, yeah, so and it seems like, like really is, like that. Her name is Vivian. She's like, you know, revivifying. She. Mm-hmm. she has a lust for life and and <laughs> but I, I it's like it's very hard to articulate why this movie is good because it's like it sounds terrible when you describe it you know <laughs> yeah there's um, a lot of like things about it that shouldn't work you and know? also i think it, that's why i avoided it for so long because i was just like everybody loves it how good could it be um and then when i watched it i was like oh yeah it's really good this is why julia roberts became a movie star clearly yep and Again, it's just like it shouldn't work, but it does. It's just it's it's just good. The chemistry is, I think, a huge part of it because you can't really manifest that if it's not there. And when you're watching them on screen, like you are so attracted to how attracted they are to each other. Yeah. And I think that's like the thing that money can't buy that like yep. Hollywood is always trying to create. But it's it is truly just like 
lightning in a bottle. Like I was thinking of this about Greece too. It's just like John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John are just both so hot, but they're hot together yes. in this way that you cannot always engineer. It's just like you know, you know when it's when it's happening, and it is rare. And you and you think of movies where like that is where the people have so much chemistry, like Out of Sight, Steven Soderbergh. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. about a lot. Um, I think Soderbergh is very good at just being like, what is erotic? Isn't just seeing people fuck. It's like seeing people talk before they fuck. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's seeing people like navigate that they both want to fuck each other, but like, how do you get there? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and sort of like the weird dance of like, are we going to do this? Like all the, all the stuff around it. Um, and, and again, yeah, this movie is just like, they're just talking. They're just chatting it up chatting it up and even when the sex is a foregone conclusion like in the case of this film like they know they are going to have sex Mm -hmm. julia robert is is julia roberts is going to do her job um uh she's gonna make the sale and build the thing um but the the way we get to see them exchange you know and learn about each other um in and around that is uh is almost more satisfying to your point than than the sex well it's I mean, also like it, it's it's so brilliant in this movie because the whole thing is that they have sex but they can't kiss right that if they yes. kiss, right. she's right. she's crossing the line into you know civilian relationship between from being a pro and right. so you know she we know that she probably has done this with a lot of guys and not kissed them. And she's, you know, good at what she does, as she says. Um, but it's also funny to think that like in this movie's world, it's like, she's, she's so good at her job, but if she kisses a man, she'll get involved. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, again, it's that fantasy, right? That it's like, uh, if, if the, the lady, you know, gets to, gets to put her mouth on someone else's mouth, like she's gonna do what ladies do and become immediately transfixed. Right. She'll this become person. emotionally attached. If she kisses you, she's going to fall in love with you. And it's not just that you're going to fall in love with her because she's so good at acting the fantasy that you've paid for. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I do think that like, you know, real rich guys fall in love with sex workers all the time, not just rich guys, <laughs> like men, <laughs> like Men fall in love with with sex workers all the time and think that it's going to turn into a real relationship and that it isn't just transactional and based on them spending money. Um, And that's, you know, a lot of what Heidi World is about is like, who's really in charge? The person who is spending all the money on sex or the person who gets to have sex for money and, you know controls actually the terms of the situation that the you know they're the magician they're the one doing the trick obviously Mm -hmm. this movie definitely situates us in the perspective that julia roberts is indeed the one in control yeah well i had a question for you molly about this because you know like obviously this this movie sort of posits that uh the elite so to speak are not ones who 
generally at large partake in uh you know paid like who are not the patrons of sex workers when they're like oh nobody we don't have those kinds of people here at the beverly hills hotel like oh okay (laughs) yeah sure And, and it makes it makes you know engagement with sex workers from like elite people seem like an outlier or seem like an anomaly and so i guess you know this this one doesn't really uh, ever really explore like who the clientele are? We don't see anybody who's ever participating in this transaction or buying. No, but sex. it's also like they talk about. I think it's like the thing they're really his friends are really horrified by isn't that he hired a hooker, but that he hired a street hooker. Mm-hmm. You know, right? That's what's also like a lot of the stuff in Heidi World is like that. There's this hierarchy of sex workers and that yeah if you pay so much money and you're getting like a high-end escort that it's like you're gonna get the sex is gonna be better like the girl is gonna be hotter than if you go down to hollywood boulevard and just pick up a girl right which is all just like branding and marketing you know Mm -hmm. it's like sex is sex like if you're spending five dollars or you're spending five thousand dollars like it's probably the same thing but the guy spending $5,000 also has this like psychological idea that he's going to get, it's going to be better the more money he spends. That if you spend the most money on sex, it's going to be the most mind-blowing sex. And then it becomes kind of a placebo effect where it's like, then it will. If you believe yeah. that like spending spending five grand on, on a blowjob is going to be the greatest blowjob of your life, then like it probably will. Yeah. <laughs> We call that sunk cost fel- fellatio. <laughs> I think yes. it's yeah. I think it's sunk cost uh, fantasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but it, you know that brings me to kind of a, an interesting comparison here between Julia Roberts' character and Laura San Giacomo's character. Uh, in the original script that J.F. Lawton wrote, I you already mentioned that uh, Vivian was someone who did have a drug dependency, who was a little bit rough around the edges. She was more experienced in that than Kit was. Like she was the one kind of calling the shots and cracking the whip, who who owns the apartment. And so in this final draft that becomes Pretty Woman, they transpose a lot of those more kind of jagged qualities of Vivian's character onto Kit to make this kind of distinction between Kit as like a, a a person who sort of uh, this is, is going to sound bad, but kind of what this movie is saying is she belongs on Hollywood Boulevard versus Vivian, who can transcend, who like is someone who needs to kind of actualize her full potential as a lady outside of outside of this environment. Yeah, I mean, but even like because it's a Gary Marshall movie, it's like they don't even go all the way with Kit being like, oh, and she's a cokehead, and like she's you know something really bad happens to her. Like all the Mm -hmm. things that would normally happen in a movie about prostitutes in order to make it be like a cautionary tale and be like, don't let your daughters, you know, do sex work. Um, Don't really happen in this movie. Yeah. Um, And even just sort of like the, I don't know. I love this movie. What I like about the, the Hollywood Boulevard stuff in this movie too, is it's like, it's treated with kind of the like loving, seediness that i feel about hollywood boulevard it's mm-hmm. like it's not like oh this is a scary horrible like you know gross bad place it's like no this is like a public space where people gather and there's like the you know the buskers and, and like everybody's hustling and so again in heidi world it's like the sort of connection between the street hustlers and 
the people hustling in the penthouses is like really just context. It's not like the hustlers in the penthouses are better at hustling. They're just hustling in a different zone. Yeah. I mean, this movie is explicit about that connection and is explicit that the hustlers in the street are actually better than the hustlers in the penthouse. Well, there's actually like this book I read. uh, I read this book about Laurel Canyon and they talked about um, somebody said that Laurel Canyon was kind of like the place for people to go hustle, hustle their way into the music business and into the Mm -hmm. scene. um, If they didn't have sort of the, the, the cojones, I guess, to make it just hustling eye to eye on Hollywood Boulevard is what they said. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and it was Kim Fowley, who's a horrible person, but, uh, <laughs> you know, a true hustler, like a true Hollywood hustler, uh, child of Hollywood. And he said, yeah, oh, you know, yeah, Laurel Canyon was if you couldn't do deals just like straight up on Hollywood Boulevard talking to people. You went to Laurel Canyon if you if you needed to just like hang around and find your way in into opportunities. But, yeah, this idea that everybody is like hustling towards a goal um and and that Julia Roberts character isn't necessarily she isn't like obsessed with getting into the upper class it's like he has to convince her that's something she wants she just wants the sales ladies not to be mean to her like they talk about in Romeo and Michelle <laughs> right <laughs> um yeah the the line when edward says to her uh you and i are so similar vivian we both screw people for money And, you know, the the very explicit connection that this movie is making between the prostitutes in Wall Street, in and on Wall Street and the prostitutes on Hollywood Boulevard, that Mm -hmm. that uh, Vivian is actually a person with sort of more sound moral. uh, Well, he's a corporate raider. He's a bad person. Right. Um, And I got kind of obsessed with the idea that he's like a Jeffrey Epstein type character. Absolutely. You know, hundred percent. Like, mysterious financier. He's got gray hair, just like um yeah, I, I mean he he's worse than her. The idea that they're the same is like, no, he's he's bad. She's yes. good. She right. is literally selling a good that people want and then delivering on the good. He's the one who's like buying up companies for scraps, you know, and like buying, buying companies and, and destroying them and stripping them. Yeah. Um, it's such like a strange, uh, quote. Like I, I, I like the sort of symmetry and simplicity of that. Like we both screw people for money kind of situation, but one of those is a consensual, like pleasure seeking endeavor. And the other right. one is like fucking people over. Well, what I was right, going to say different is meanings that... of screw. It's like she yes. has sex with people for money. He fucks people over. Mm-hmm. Yes. She, she's not fucking exactly. anybody over. The way that line lands is actually the point for me mm-hmm. that like you hear it and you're like, no, that's that's wrong. <laughs> like you, you guys aren't the same. Um, yes, you are. You are both uh, in this this sales exercise and there are, are you know there can be similarities drawn to um you know the the sort of trappings that they operate in but when you hear that line you're supposed to be like oh but she's better than you mm-hmm. like you you don't screw people in the same way um and i think i like that i don't know if that's necessarily like what the movie wants us to feel but i certainly felt it 
Edward, you said you never come out here. Well, I'm only halfway out. Didn't say much in the car on the way home. You thinking about dinner? I was a maniac. I mean, the business was good, I think, you know? He's in trouble. You want his company. He doesn't want to let it go. Thanks for the recap. Problem is, I think you like Mr. Morse. What I would like is for you to get down from there. You're making me very nervous. Please, come down. It's making you nervous? What if I just lean back a little bit like this? Would you, would you rescue me if I fell? Vivian, I'm serious. Come, I'm not looking. It's really high. Look, no hands, no hands. Okay, all right, I'm sorry. The truth is, it really is totally irrelevant whether I like this man or not. I will not let myself become emotionally involved in business. I know. Kit's always saying to me, don't get emotional when you turn tricks. That's why no kissing is too personal. It's like what you're saying. You stay numb. You don't get involved. When I'm with a guy, I'm like a robot. I just do it. I mean, except with you. Of course not with me. You and I are such similar creatures, Vivian. We both screw people for money. I want to talk a little bit about the Hector Elizondo character, the manager of the, the hotel, uh, because he's incredibly charming in this movie, but he also represents kind of an interesting sort of like vector through which Julia Roberts's character has to pass, right? Vivian has to sort of get the approval of of Hector Elizondo's character and sort of be sculpted in his image and and get the right dress, and then only then is she allowed in the penthouse again. Um, I, I don't know how you all feel about or what you make of his character, but I I like him. I love Hector Elizondo as a performer. He's just a a, a strange sort of participant in all of this as a character. Yeah, and I guess uh, for whatever reason, Gary Marshall paid for him out of pocket. They didn't want to hire him for the movie, so Gary, oh my gosh. Gary Marshall put up his fee. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like his sort of like polishing of of Julia Roberts is is very much likened to like the maintenance and the polishing of the hotel <laughs> that yeah. he sort of like keeps everything in order and. And when there's scuffs to rub out, like he takes care of them and and makes sure that his staff is attending to everything and, yeah, and, and that and, he's doing that with her. And like Ralph Bellamy's in this movie as the mm-hmm. as the the old businessman. Um, you know, and it's clearly very much like it's going for screwball comedy. It's going specifically for like bringing up baby and and nailing it. But it does also feel like a 30s movie in that it almost feels like it's like it's like a pre-code movie. It's like, yeah. you know, we're out of the this late 60s and early 70s where we could finally show sex on film for the first time ever, you know, since since the code. And, you know, it's gone through all these iterations of like how explicit can you possibly get with sex in film and then this is like the very late 80s and it's just sort of like i don't know it's it's great that it's just her job <laughs> that yeah. it's not used to be like and now i don't know it's crazy it's like you never even see her tits in this movie 
I don't know. It's just like it's so wholesome for a sex work, you know, a comedy about sex work. And in that way, it like becomes transgressive because like almost every other movie about a sex worker ends with like, and then she gets murdered because Mm -hmm. that's what happens if you try to do sex work, like really bad things happen to you and you die from drugs, you know? Right. And so like some people think this movie like is like overly sanitizing of stuff and that it just turns it into this fairy tale but i i find it very refreshing that it's like she doesn't get murdered her friend doesn't die everybody just like does sex work and lives which is also what i love about the heidi fleiss stories it's like Mm -hmm. yeah people's lives are affected and like things happen to them but like it's a job it's a job this movie being so dialogue driven uh and the writing and the improvising being done so well I think allows for that to feel real um, rather than like manufactured like I get why people would say that this movie is sanitizing things but because there's so much emphasis on you know these two people spending time together in a room talking and having great electric kinetic conversation like it can just be that. And that's entertaining in and of itself. There well, doesn't have to be, be melodrama. Like, it's such a great setup to be like they're having sex, but like the suspense is like, will they catch feelings? You know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Because uh, relatable, relatable. Totally relatable. <laughs> this movie absolutely, for the record, like taught me how to flirt or at least like signaled to me like what flirting was between adults because so many films, I think like don't bother with the actual like as you said just how hot it is for people to like make each other laugh and to like surprise one another and to just you know have a conversation where they're they're talking about stuff but they're not talking about stuff like that is something that I don't think a lot of movies particularly in this era like spent time on and did well and this movie does and it's so it's so hot. And I like, I remember like thinking on, you know, my whatever watch when I was a kid, like, oh yeah, like th- I get this. I-, I get why people fall in love because I was watching them, you know, have those, have those conversations. And it made sense to me that two people could become attracted to one another over time by simply opening their mouths more mm-hmm. and like speaking to one another. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, coming off the 80s where there was a lot of sort of like the two most expensive stars put together in a room will make a movie that makes a lot of money, which is like what, how production, how executives wish things worked, you know, yeah. with that. <laughs> Jennifer yes. Lawrence plus Chris Pratt equals profit. <laughs> oh. um, right. Yeah. And that there's like an X factor beyond that that you have to have. Um, that studios are not as interested in, don't know how to do somebody actually creative has to make happen. Um, And again, like Julia Roberts was absolutely considered a gamble at this point. She was not like a big star where they were like, everybody will come see this movie if Julia Roberts is in it. You know, she was, she was a, a truly like rookie of the year. And yeah, I think just, uh, the fact that this movie is just about like humanizing these two people that are objectifying each other for money 
again, just like a really good run up into the 90s where where suddenly every movie is going to be like people talking in rooms again after sort of all mm-hmm. the big budget yep. 80s stuff and and materialism that then because of movies like Sex, Lies and Videotape, it becomes, you know, what can you what can you do with like no money? How, you know, right. how can you what can you do with just people talking in rooms? And so the idea that, you know, everybody likes to retroactively be like, it was a sure thing, but nobody in Hollywood ever knows what's really going to be a hit. Like the things they think are going to be hits are often the biggest bombs and vice versa. Um, and so this movie is also just really Julia Roberts, like betting on herself and being mm. like, I'm, you know, like her character. She's like, I'm going to show up. I'm going to make you feel incredible. And then you're not going to ever be able to forget me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, and yeah. I think what I think about a lot is like what we're told about about sex and transactionalism is that it's like, you know, sex costs money, women are objects, you pay money for objects so you can like dispose of them, right? Like, like you buy a car, you buy, you know, you you pick a wife like you buy a car, and then you mm-hmm. trade it in for like a better, newer, younger car at a certain point because they're all like just possessions. But I just feel like there's all these counter narratives throughout time um, with people like Heidi Fleiss, but you know, like with Ju- Julia Roberts in this movie, especially where it's like, no, women are not replaceable, and. <laughs> Actually, like, not only are they different from each other, like, if somebody is valuable, there, there's like a value beyond money that people can have, you know, and that becomes like something like star quality uh, that then becomes more money, more of a money value. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that if women were really so replaceable and it really didn't matter like who it is ever, you know, just like every hot woman is the same, then like, yeah, we wouldn't have movie stars like Julia Roberts because clearly there's something about some people that makes them like more, more special. Yeah. And this movie is about Richard Gere's character learning that lesson. Right. And like developing a preference for like a woman with a personality, yes. which is like a, you know, female fantasy is like, <laughs> what if right. he didn't just want to fuck me? He also like wanted to talk to me. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We've talked a little bit about like the sexual politics of this movie, not feeling as dated as I think any of us were anticipating. The thing to me that actually kind of, uh, feels at odds with a lot of the movie is some of like the materialist kind of conceits of it. Um, and, and as you said, Molly, you know, like this movie is, you know, both narratively and metatextually about like how special Julia Roberts is and how much personality she exudes in this sort of like star quality to her. Uh, but the movie tries to also kind of like, I feel like quantify the self-worth of the character in a lot of specific ways. And and those ways to me are the parts that feel kind of like petty moralization. Uh, The one big one is like drug use, right? Where like Kit is someone who uses drugs, which we only hear about one time and never comes up again. Uh, And then there's that moment when like Richard Gere catches her in the bathroom thinking she's using, uh, but she's just flossing because she's got strawberry (laughs) seeds in her teeth. 
Uh, those are the things to me that feel kind of dated. Which is also movie. crazy because they talk about strawberries early on in the movie uh, in the other sense, meaning a, a crack whore. Right. Yep. yep. There's yep. like the mm-hmm. guy in the first scene who's like, she's a strawberry. She's a strawberry. About, yes. Which I completely was like, what? I don't remember this part of the movie. <laughs> Where, yeah. Like, it's the um, only rom-com I can think of that starts with a sex worker dead in a dumpster and Hank Azaria like investigating right. it. And, it. and it starts dark. So you think it's going to be kind of like dark. And then instead it is a Gary Marshall movie. Mm-hmm. But even that part, it's like, he isn't like, here's like the disgusting city. It's like, he's from mm-hmm. New York. He's like, <laughs> right. it's a city, you yes. know? And that's like a thing I always am talking about is like i don't know especially in la when people complain about like you know the state of los angeles and and the homelessness problem and you know drug drugs and stuff i'm always like you live in a city if i live in a city i want there to be like junkies and streetwalkers because that to me is like what it means to live in a city if you don't want that experience, move to the suburbs, mm-hmm. you know, like there being like an economy that's happening all the time on the streets is natural. Like people are always selling sex and drugs and to try and like eradicate that is what's crazy to me. And so I think also this movie really hits home that like Hollywood Boulevard is so close to Beverly Hills. Yes. You know, like they're really not very far apart, both physically, but also like spiritually, you know, Um, it just depends what type of things you want to buy. And again, like in Beverly Hills, yeah, man, like people are bringing women that are only there because you're paying for stuff. But this idea that like there's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. um, This movie kind of says like no fuck that there's not I love that you said that this movie um like has sort of a a loving perspective toward Hollywood Boulevard and just shows that it is like a place where things happen um and one of the things that I think is a great shorthand for that is the man I don't know what he's credited as maybe other than like street man uh in the (laughs) In the movie, but the man who opens opens the film and closes right, the who's film. Who's like Hollywood, the greatest place in the world? I mean, that's how I am. I'm like Hollywood. I love Hollywood Boulevard because I do think it is also like you really can't scrub off the kind of like sleaziness of it. That's like its core character, much like Times Square. It's like all these attempts to kind of sanitize it and make it Disneyland. Right. It's like, no, like the city needs a public square and a tourism zone is always going to be kind of this chaotic, like, you know, open market. And yes, I think that's cool as hell. (laughs) Um, And Beverly Hills is the opposite. Like Beverly Hills is the worst place on earth. You know, (laughs) I don't know if you've ever been there. Yes. But it is like Beverly Hills is sanitized in a way that makes you 
just want to die because it's like there's no street life. If you go there at night, there's nobody walking around. I was just there the other night driving through and it was like crazy. There was not a person on the street at like 9 p.m. You know, yep. it's like it's just a shopping district, uh, you know, and they harass the homeless people out of town. So it's also mm-hmm. like when I go to a neighborhood and there's no homeless people, that also makes me feel really uncomfortable because it's like, okay, like the fascists have been here and swept all the homeless people uh, to whatever the next neighborhood over is. Yes. Um. So, yeah, I think I don't I don't know. I mean. This movie isn't on the side of the yuppies. I think that's what makes it good. And like George Costanza, which is his his real name, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> he plays the sort of stand-in for the evil yuppies in yep. this movie, for the people who just care about money, who just think women can be bought and sold in order to throw, uh, throw Richard Gere's character into relief as like, no, he's not. He's not an absolute capitalist psycho he's not american Mm -hmm. psycho right um his friend is yep 100 percent. yeah he has like a very kind of parasitic and subtractive quality to every single thing that he does and we also see like the blatant contradiction at the core of him right this sort of like judgmental posture he takes towards uh the relationship between gear and roberts uh but then behind closed doors you know he uh, commits a sexual assault in this movie. Like he like attacks her violently. He punches her in the face uh, and, you know, rightfully gets, you know, kind of like scorned and, and kicked out of the the penthouse. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a darker moment in the movie. It's otherwise. dark. And that moment's great. Not great, but I mean, it's like Julia Roberts is, is great in that moment because that is when you see her kind of like drop the persona and be just kind of like scared and you realize she's 22, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that also makes you be like acting uh, <laughs> and her hair's gotten too straight. It's like she's going down the wrong path. <laughs> right. <laughs> So Molly, I want to talk a little bit about Heidi World and Heidi Fleiss a, a little bit um, more broadly here. For for those of us, uh, for our listeners who don't know Heidi Fleiss, can you give us just a quick detail of, of who she is and, sure. and what she's known for? Yeah, Heidi Fleiss was a, uh, a woman from Los Angeles who in her teens ran a babysitting ring at her high school. And then in her 20s, ended up running a high-end escort ring and becoming a madam after apprenticing with another madam named Madam Alex. And then she became the most uh, notable broker of high-end sex in LA for several years. And then she was brought down by the cops essentially for not paying them off, not because the cops uh, care really, but because she wouldn't play their game and she wouldn't give them kickbacks and she wouldn't let the cops have sex with girls for free, which is what all the other madams historically had done. So I just, you know, this story made a big impression on me when I was young and it happened in LA. And 
that was also the first time I was really like, well, why is it illegal to sell sex? Like what, what makes it bad besides our sort of like moralism, American puritanism that's like, oh, you know, sex outside of marriage and outside of procreation is like always bad. Um, you know, because it just seemed very like obvious to me that like, okay, well, if somebody wants to sell their body, they should be allowed to because it belongs to them. And if somebody wants to buy somebody else's body for an hour or whatever, like why, why, why can't you, you know, you can, you can do all these, you can do it in all these other ways. And I think just growing up in LA and being like the billboards are all selling me sex, like the movies are all mm-hmm. selling me sex, like yeah. Pretty Woman is like photoshopping Julia Roberts' head on a different woman's body to sell me sex like um you know why 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 does everybody get to sell sex except like the sexy women who and men you know i think yeah just this idea of like there's a right way to sell sex and a wrong way to sell sex and the right way inevitably is like that you don't really profit off of it yourself you know that you let somebody else do it for you uh, did you see any names in the credits of Pretty Woman of people that were like known uh, involved? To, yeah, involved with Heidi Fleischer or her her business. I mean, there's no way that there aren't some connections. Um, I mean, there was a part in one of the things I read that talked about a director who was making a movie about a prostitute bringing an actress over to Heidi's to meet Heidi, and like see her mannerisms and see what it was like and i for some reason my brain was like this was gary marshall this is gary marshall (laughs) and julia roberts and i've read some other blind items about gary marshall that were a little bit like he had this very wholesome reputation but he was also like a man in hollywood in the 80s and yep may have dated some professionals or you know gone on some dates with women who were yeah just uh that even the most wholesome guy in hollywood in the 80s was was probably still paying for sex yep (laughs) i believe that yeah absolutely again it's the thing that we like talked about with this movie already which is that it it tries to it it supposes that these places in Beverly Hills, there's this sort of like dividing line in which like nobody crosses and that, you know, they, they don't, they, they don't pay for sex. They don't, they don't. Well, that's uh, the funniest part when they're like, we don't do that here. The Beverly Wilshire. It's like, uh, it's literally all this hotel is for. That's what it's yes. for, especially the penthouse. Yeah. Like all these hotels are that, that again is like, it, you know, if people are having sex in like a apartment, shitty apartment building in Hollywood, it's like somehow de classe. But if it's in the penthouse, you know, and the thing a lot about that these sex workers talk about a lot is like a lot of women will do this stuff for free. Like a lot of women are like doing whatever it takes to like go out with these rich guys and they're not even getting paid for it. So yep. like what's wrong with getting paid for, you know, or just that they're it's transactional in a, in a different way that if you're going to the Ivy, if you're a hot 22-year-old and you're going to the Ivy or whatever with some producer, that there is like an implication that like he's buying your dinner and then you're going to have sex. And 
that being sort of like the core foundation of heterosexuality has always been just like completely baffling to me, you know, because it's mm-hmm. like, who wants to, who wants to feel like they had sex because somebody bought them dinner, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and like, that doesn't feel romantic to me because it does feel like it's like, okay, well, that means you're worth like the steak, you know? So I think also when people are like aware of that and use it themselves to be like, uh, I'm going to get more than a stake out of this and then I'll have sex with you and it's not degrading because I'm the one getting the money from it and like Mm -hmm. using you emotionally. Um, It just feels like the people with the money are the ones who feel like they're in control, but they're clearly not, you know? On Heidi World, you kind of mentioned this, right? That a, a lot of the reasons besides, you know, Heidi's big mouth that she created a lot of problems is sort of because of the way that uh, she was redirecting the power dynamic of these sex workers. Yeah. And I mean, what I was really not shocked, but like a little surprised to just see how completely intertwined the sex work industry in Hollywood have always been, you know, that like, Fox Studios had like a secret underground tunnel by which sex workers could get in uh, (laughs) so that like people's wives wouldn't see, you know, it's like Mm. the way in which kind of like hiring women to be around the men was like just part and parcel of the business always and that they don't like when it gets like exposed in this way when it's like oh actually these guys are all like uh wanna you know they're all they're all like losers from high school who come to LA and are like now I'm a hot guy and women love me and it has nothing to do with the fact that I like made top gun you know <laughs> right <laughs> right it's like everyone's kind of playing their fantasy role in the situation And Heidi, yeah, Heidi was just like, yeah, I'm going to take advantage of this. I'm going to do it. And like, instead of it being like an older woman like Madame Alex or like a street pimp who is literally, you know, violent and beats people into submission, that she was doing it in a way that she thought was ethical, which was a 40% cut. She's like an agent, you know, she was like... I set up the gigs, you go do the gigs, nobody gets hurt nobody gets ripped off um and some of the issues girls had would be like when they would try to book outside of Heidi when they would try to like book things themselves with people who weren't vetted and then they would get ripped off you know so it was kind of like and just like talking to sex workers it's like people who've worked in brothels will say it's like there's safety in numbers you know the if you're a it's like being in a union it's like if you're a lone Mm -hmm. wolf working just for yourself it's you're maybe going to get screwed over more because you don't have protections you don't have other people helping you learn the rules of the game and so she was really just like building power for sex workers like obviously she was also their boss she also may have sent some people out on like not the safest gigs you know sent people to uh don simpson who was notoriously Mm -hmm. like an abusive john um but you know that she was saying at all, like, this can be done ethically. People are going to sell sex no matter what. What if we made it so that it was, like, actually safe and good for everybody so that everybody gets what they want 
out of the situation. And and especially that she was like ripping off these rich guys that what they wanted was to pay the most money for that, you know, for what I was saying before, it's like, they really believe if I pay $5,000 for a night of sex with this beautiful woman, it's going to be the best sex I've ever had in my life. There's a part in Pretty Woman where, where he's like, why are you doing this? You know, you, you've got so much more to you. And she's like, I worked in fast food. Like, I worked in retail. Like, this is better, which you hear from sex workers a lot. It's like the issue isn't that sex work is like exploitative. It's that like work is exploitative. And yes, if there's a way to be in charge of your profession, and this is also like just from talking to, to adult performers and people, like I really started to notice that we were just all in the gig economy together, you know, where I was like, damn, I also don't know what my next job is ever have no security, have no health insurance, and have like five side hustles in order to do the one thing that I really am trying to do. Um, And I think that's only gotten more true. You know, I think that every job has become more like a mercenary type thing. And so talking to sex workers who have been working in an industry that's like very robust but also like historically unregulated it's like we're all in this industry that's like much less and less regulated and there's no protections for anybody from work so yeah you know what i said on heidi world too is it's like it's not degrading to have sex for money if everybody involved wants is that's what they want you know what's degrading is like working for Amazon and having to piss in a jar and not being allowed to take a bathroom break and then being served like a, you know, calm yourself down uh, aphorism by a terrifying computer. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> nobody should be exploited at their job. And I think sex workers are often just like the bleeding edge of that is like, mm. we should be protecting everybody to do the job they are doing safely instead of a like pretending it doesn't exist and trying to eradicate it, which is what right wingers and also sometimes liberals want to do this idea that we're going to like abolish sex outside of marriage is always like very crazy to me. (laughs) Cause again, it's like, even if we didn't have sex workers, people would like find ways to have sex outside of marriage. It just feels so American and puritanical that we're like, we can force everybody into the nuclear family if we like get rid of all the other options. So yeah, what it's really about is like working for worker safety for everybody. And that's why I'm running on the Pretty Woman campaign. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, you do see actually in LA, we do have this long tradition of like porn stars running for mayor and I've all, you know, like Mary Carey, mm-hmm. um, Angeline, who's not a porn star, but is like a, you know, a sexual persona mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Um, you know, and I'm always like, God, I wish we had a porn star <laughs> for mayor. <laughs> wish we had a porn star for president. Like if we had had, you know, Stormy Daniels instead of Donald Trump. Like, right. Yeah. I would trust her. <laughs> A hundred percent. And I, I guess that leads me to kind of one of the final questions for, for you, Molly, which is, uh, you know, we, we've talked about kind of the refreshing 
depiction of sex workers as humans and and kind of three-dimensional people in Pretty Woman. And I'm wondering, as someone who's who's maybe spent more time with it and done the research, if you noticed in pop culture, specifically in movies, a shift in that kind of perspective to something that felt more like moralizing or talking down to over the next like 20 years as well, we eventually get to like Sesta Fosta. I do think we're in like a very anti-sex moment mm-hmm. um, yep. in film and I feel like you see all these crazy like viral threads of people being like, we hate sex scenes. Uh, once a week. You know, or I'm just like, who hates sex scenes? <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but also just like, uh, like Marvel movies are so, you know, there's this international market that makes it like people don't want sex in movies because everything has to be sort of like for everybody, for children, which is what's crazy about Pretty Woman, too, is it's like sort of a kid's movie. Like kids see that movie and uh, – you know internalize how just that it's romantic they're not mm-hmm. like right um and even like top gun which is produced by don simpson jerry bruckheimer who you know appear in heidi world a bunch don simpson was a big customer of heidi's um like i was saying like top like when he was like top gun is like cia propaganda and i was like yeah but it's like gay it's good <laughs> it's horny <laughs> It's got like the horny like beach volleyball and the yeah. you know beach football um compared to like a Marvel movie which is like all these sort of like physically perfect people who don't have a sexual thought who like banter but that feels nothing you know Yep like Top Gun is so horny Top Gun is like you want it Top Gun is a pretty woman about wanting Val Kilmer and Tom Cruise to fuck and they kind of brought that spirit to the sequel too, you know, where I was like, oh, thank God Miles Teller is like sweaty and hot, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like people have sex in this universe because like people have sex in life. And I don't know, I don't ever worry about things being like over sexualized in movies because again, it's like it's gone so far in the other direction. And that's always been an issue in American movies. It's like you can show the most violent thing on earth, but if you show tits, then it's like you get an, an X, you know, mm-hmm. yep. or a hard R. And that's what all the European directors, like Verhoeven especially, is always like just was trying to figure out ways to like get nudity and sex into movies because he was just like it, Americans are so weird about it. You can show someone getting their brains blown out and that's not considered pornographic, but like a nipple is, you know? Yep a penis is like you never get to see like a penis in a in a movie and so i keep notes of when you do you know um <laughs> like honestly i i do think it's kind of like the backlash i hope there's a there's a pro sex backlash because um because that's what the movies are for we go we come to this place to be <laughs> I forget what she says, but you know, we do. We under we agree. Nicole knows what she's talking. Nicole knows, like boners yeah. feel good in a place like this. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's about the communal experience, and it's about you know the movies are erotic. It's like you're in a dark room with a whole group of people that are like softly breathing, and so right. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, lean into it, get into it. Uh, but uh, Heidi World. Molly is fantastic. It's it's an 
awesome undertaking. It's super fun to listen to. Everyone should be listening to it. If people have more of an interest in in Heidi beyond your show, where should they go to next? What else should they be reading or looking well, at? Well, she's got uh she's on YouTube and Instagram and stuff. Um but there's also there's like the Nick Broomfield doc and then there's another doc called Heidi Fleiss, the would-be madam of Parump, I believe, uh, about when she tried to start a brothel for women with male studs. Um, mm. It's just a rich vein of of everything. It's fascinating. <laughs> just a fascinating person. Agreed. Uh, well, Molly Lambert, thank you so very much for hanging out with us for in sure, the Factory. For sure. Thank you. And yeah, uh, people can find me on Twitter at Molly Lambert and on Instagram at Molly underscore Lambert. You can also follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, you can subscribe to the show for biweekly bonus content at patreon.com slash hit factory pod. We should give a shout out to our overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. And we will catch you all the next time. Yeah, I don't need to find-